Welcome. To Arcade Audio. Paired. Now reading. Show description for podcast Paired. Paired is a short-form comedy fiction podcast exploring guided meditations and musings from your digital assistant. Paired is a podcast that answers the question, what if Alexa weren't evil? Paired will debut its new season on September 25th, featuring guest stars such as Janet Varney, Philip Molina, Addison Peacock, Alex Flanagan, Sarah Shockey, and many more. Paired is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. End show description. Unpaired. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Shared History. A sandwich is a sandwich, but history is a meal. Oh. And Natalie, you're a snack. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're going to serve up some tasty history. Um, For those of us... For those of us... just Natalie just had to rewire quick. (laughs) Yep. Uh, For those of us... Just joining us, uh, Shared History is, you know, that history podcast that talks about things that we wish that we covered in history class. And by we, I mean myself, Nat, and I did it right as she took a sip of water. And, okay. and, and, and she's also talking about me, Cass, who right before we started recording, I said I wasn't going to drink on while we were recording. And of course I did. You just needed to whet your whistle. I needed to whet my whistle, and I did. <laughs> Congratulations. We're oh. not historians. We're two Chicago comedians, the one of us coming at you from the Moines. That's me. The Moines of Iowa. The Moines, the Moines of, of Iowa. Iowa. The great Moines of <laughs> Iowa. Um, and the other one's coming from the great city of Chicago. Yeah. That's all I got. That's, that's all I got. It's all, it's all, it's all, all the city need. needs. Chicago doesn't have any nicknames whatsoever. Not a nickname city at all. I believe we it's just called call it Chicago. I don't know. I believe it's called the Breezy City. Oh, well, it is. It is often quite breezy. Yeah, very breezy. Just small, small little gusts of wind. I thought it was the city of sturdy shoulders. <laughs> I do have a broad shoulder, but since I moved away, they can't call it that, which is why now Chicago is a no nickname city. Mm-hmm. Zero nicknames yeah. allowed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Natalie, did you ever have nicknames growing up? Um, no. I all of my friends in high school through today call me Fatally. <laughs> what? Some of my teachers did too. <laughs> No, no, it's fine. <laughs> oh, no, it's horrible. 
<laughs> Why yeah. am I laughing? <laughs> no, it was I uh I was a stick bug of a of a teen and so it was one of those comedic oh. comedic irony bits. Like but. like calling a, a short guy stretch or a fat guy yeah. slim. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What what did your husband call you? Oh, he calls me Natsack. <laughs> <laughs> I am privy to that one, yes. I had to marry him because he was the first person to come up with an original nickname for me in years. I mean, the, that's, that's, that's the, the law. <laughs> it's the law in Chicago. It's weird. Mm-hmm. You didn't have city. any nicknames? No, because my name's Cassidy, but I always went by Cass, which feels very nicknamey. And I was so good at giving nicknames to everyone. Like well, nicknames that still stick today. And I think the thought process was... If I start giving out nicknames, Someone people will give, give me, me. And it never works. It, it never yeah. works. You can't give yourself your own nickname. I've given some great nicknames and been like, one of these days, <laughs> be reciprocated. And I then- will say, though, I've always gone by Cass, which clearly rhymes with ass, right? Oh, never. Rife, rife for, you know, bullying growing up no the worst anyone ever called me was actually my friend katie in like third grade she called me grassity and then she would wow, just start calling how me how dare she i know i was like really not even acidy and then she would just she just kept calling me grass so every now and then like in high school she would be like hey grass i'd be like it's because you were too thirsty for dead ass <laughs> <laughs> i'm thirsty for dead ass Nick, Nick, I don't know. I don't love that. I was at a bar once and it was really loud and I was like talking to people and this guy and I were talking and he was like, what's your name? You know, it's like really loud. So he's shouting over. I was like, oh, it's Cass. He's like, whoa, you know, I've met a lot of people with some really interesting names, but that's probably the most interesting I've ever heard. And like seemed dumbfounded. I was like, what did you think I said? He's like, Gas. I've never heard anyone named Gas before. Well, I mean, if the methane cloud fits, <laughs> and it does, and it does. It <laughs> forms to your curves and your contours like a but nice that's, little bubble. But that's science, Natalie, and we're here to it's share true. history. We only share history, <laughs> which we also don't know a lot about. Uh, Cass, what? Oh, should we didn't decide who was going to go first? No. I feel like um, the last. I'm thinking of a number. Oh, a number. Any guardrails, or do I just get to name a number? Go. Great. Guardrails be damned. Still only going to say three. <gasps> it was seven. You're close, so you can go first. Oh my goodness. I don't know how that logical. <laughs> That's math. That's math. We don't do math. We don't. We don't, we don't question do it. We don't do we it's don't witchcraft. Do no, we just do history. Just, and do we? We try. We try history. We, yeah. That's why we share. We're just cheating off each other's answers. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Can you imagine if people use this as a, this podcast as a source? Uh, Oh, sweet Jesus. They do. (laughs) Hey, Cass. Hey, Nat. Do you know what a banana republic is? Oh, my God. They have a great slack. Nice, (laughs) nice beige khaki, Mm -hmm. like, action going on. A lot of, like, stiff collars i mean you like lorelei gilmore's mom look 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 i love the gap as much as the next person i've never (laughs) partaken in their 
the higher echelon of Gap, which is Banana Republic. You have not lived. You know, well, do they have a tall? I live that Gap tall life. I don't know if Banana Republic has a tall. I'm sure they do. But that is not the Banana Republic of which I speak. What? I, I speak of uh, a political term. Kind of a derogatory political term. A banana republic is a politically unstable country with an economy dependent on the exportation of a limited resource product. Mm. It was originally coined by an author, an American author, who I only know as a candy bar, O. Henry, who, uh, when describing Honduras and its neighboring countries being exploited by U.S. corporations for, well, in the case that he was writing about, bananas. That makes sense. See? Uh, but it's, it's a real thing. He was writing about, he was writing about a fictional republic. Um, it's in his book, Cabbages and Kings. It's a collection of short stories. But banana republics are not fictional. They are real things. It is a not nice term, and it is a not nice situation to be in. So before when I mentioned, like, the Gaps Banana Republic, I was lying. I have heard of a banana republic before, but I, I didn't for the longest time. And I remember the first time I heard it, I, like, looked it up. And I was like, oh, my God. How could you name a store after that? That's and, horrible. And you know, I don't know that <clears throat> Banana Republic, the store, has ever, like, given a satisfying answer to that, ever. Well, and also, like, the genre of clothes. Like, how are you connecting that back to you are the people exploiting these countries? You're wearing your fancy, beigey, I don't know fancy your panama hats and your yeah your, linen, your white linen pants yeah that are way too expensive way too expensive and it's uh, literally just the same thing all in the same color we were an old navy family when i graduated to the gap i was like you made it adult natalie i'm an adult i'm at also, the gap also the gap has a line called gap tall that gives Does you, it like, really? Yes, it's it gives you. There's gap long, and then there's gap tall. Gap the difference tall, between long and tall. Well, long is just like in their sizes. Gap tall is like a whole other like section and selection. <sighs> gap tall gives gap long gives you like another inch, I think, in like inseam, and gap tall gives you like two inches. And also, gap tall shirts. <laughs> are longer and their sleeves are longer listen it changed my life i was gonna say i feel like when people try to do long and whatnot they forget about the tops i'm not even that long up top no but i'm, oh. a, I'm a neville long bottom is what i am <laughs> but it thank still you helps. for that i still like i still like a because then if you if you buy a shirt with a longer sleeve to begin with then you have room for that shirt to invariably um, shrink a little mm, and still yes. be a good length sleeve but you heard it here first guys gap tall thanks for joining us on shopping with natalie it's difficult uh they <laughs> only carry my sizes online that's what you get for being a long person <laughs> anyway back to the other banana republics i wonder if you've heard about a banana republic more recently because there's been a lot of like think pieces in the last couple of years being like 
is America going to become a banana republic? And it's like, no. Really? Explain why. Because we're, our capitalist nonsense is why banana republics are a thing. Yeah. So let me take you back in time to a simpler time. It's the 1870s and America meets its first banana. Really? Like actual banana? Mm-hmm. That's not a uh, euphemism. The bananas. <laughs> bananas are introduced to the United States in 1870 by a, a schooner. A sh- I never know if it's schooner or schooner or whatever. Captain, even though I did a whole story about that style of ship. Um, also, I don't think you knew how to pronounce it during that story, did you? <laughs> by a boat captain who brought them... Uh, who bought a bunch of bananas in Jamaica and brought them to Boston. And they, he sold them in Boston for a thousand percent profit. This little tidbit had nothing to do with like the rest of my story. I just was baffled by that thousand percent profit and the fact that, that we didn't, we didn't need a banana until 1870. So cut. To- I'm no math person, but that's a big ROI. If yes. you would, a yes. Roy hard Roy. Uh, a big Roy. Mm, either way, they sound bad. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say a stiff Roy. <laughs> stiff Roy. Roy on those bananas, man. So I, I hope that that vodka just went up your nose because that's what happens to me when I laugh. It didn't, and, and I kind of wish it did. Uh, it burns a little. I don't recommend it. No. So cut to 1873. A couple of railroad tycoons. Uh, Henry Meigs and Minor C. Keith, which I love. You know, I love a nice Minor C. Um, <laughs> that's his, his name. Is it M-I-N-E-R or O? Nope. It's O-R. Minor C. Do you think he was he in the army at all? Do you, do you, are you wanting to know if he ever rose to the rank of Major Minor C. Keith? Absolutely. I don't think he did um, because he was too busy running around as a railroad tycoon with his uncle. So Henry Meigs was his uncle. Mm. And what they did is they somehow got themselves a railroad contract. The president of Costa Rica gave it to them. And basically they had a contract to build a railroad across all of Costa Rica. So the railroad line started in the capital city or what would become the capital city of San Jose, Costa Rica. And it ran to what would become the Caribbean port of Limon. So big distance, go look at a map. Trust me. (laughs) They, they planted banana plantations along the railroad they built to feed their workers. But then because, you know, you could apparently sell bananas for a thousand percent profit in Boston, they also started exporting them, but they couldn't. So the bananas were literally just, just like, hey, you guys are gonna be hungry on the way. Let's make yeah. sure we got bananas for you. Yeah, they just were planting them along the way, and then they started also exporting them to uh, southeastern United States because it was really difficult to export bananas because they have a really like tight window of when they're perfectly ripe. You're telling me, oh man, I buy bana- bananas and like the next day they're like. <sighs> They're all perfect, and then they're all banana bread. Yes. (laughs) So, but because the banana was exciting, it was exotic, and it was it was actually less expensive than a lot of locally grown fruit. It was like cheaper than buying an apple, but it was also only grown in specific climates. Mm. And as there are many many climates in the United States, banana climate wasn't one of them. 
So by the late 19th century, you have three American corporations dominating the banana market. And those three companies are Cuyamel Fruit Company, the Vaccaro Brothers, which later became the Standard Fruit Company, and the United Fruit Company. So the United Fruit Company is a company formed by our railroad tycooning miner C. Keith. And miner ran UFC. Mm-hmm. Is he a fighter? Oh, uh, he fight he he fights for bananas only. <laughs> I don't throat. know how I don't know how often Miner got his hands dirty directly doing doing the punchy times, but um, he didn't do his own dirty work. But boy, did he cause a lot of bloodshed. Ooh. So we're gonna spend like a lot of time with United Fruit Company and Kuyamel in this story. I will actually tell you, hashtag history does an episode they did what i think last season um or two seasons ago specifically on united fruit company because united uh hashtag history is another wonderful female-led history podcast we'll shout shout out to rachel and leah their whole bag is that they do a lot of stories on like corruption and conspiracy and boy is united fruit company ripe pun intended with corruption (laughs) pun always intended so highly recommend checking out their episode for like a lot of like nitty-gritty on united fruit co's corruption and shenaniganery i'm sure that went away though and it's not like that anymore oh oh definitely not (laughs) (laughs) uh same shit different name spoiler alert Uh, so united fruit company was formed by minor c keith and andrew w preston when they merged their two boston banana companies boston just can't get enough out of bananas the standard fruit company is what the vicar brothers evolved into kuyamel was founded by samuel zemariah a six foot three inch jewish immigrant who is known as the banana king or sam the banana man (laughs) That's my favorite. <laughs> and he is largely credited with building America's obsession with the banana because largely yes. credited. Yes. He's a tall man. Because he's a tall man. He would snag discarded bananas in, I think, New Orleans. There were like discarded bananas from Boston Fruit Company. They were overripe. And he was like, What are you gonna do with this? And they're like, That's trash. And he's like, To you. <laughs> And he would just like take them because they were going to throw them out and just basically sell them like street peddler style. Yeah. Um, oh, Banana Man Sam. He made his first $100,000 at 18 years old. This is late 19th century. Selling old bananas? Just selling bananas. Uh, and so then he went to Central America and he bought a bunch of overgrown land that everyone was like, okay, you can have this land. There's nothing going to grow on it. It's overgrown and it's gross. Uh, and he drained it. I think it was a swamp. He drained it and he built plantations. So he got it for dirt cheap and he built a bunch of banana plantations. There's a book about his whole banana saga and him specifically by Rich Cohen called The Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King. Um, That I honestly, I read excerpts of for this. I might read it. Sounds interesting. I love a good non-fic. We'll throw it on the shared history book list. Also, can I just say, <clears throat> bananas are of one of the most silliest fruits. They're just silly. Like, they're silly. They're, they're past. They've got a bruised past. <laughs> they do. And we just need to peel away those layers. But like, 
It's, I mean, it's the oldest gag slipping on a banana peel, you know, throwing one off a Mario Kart. Well, it looks goofy. It's, you, but, but it sounds like it has a sordid past. Look out because you might slip on a banana peel and fall straight into a couple of coups. <laughs> Seriously, for such a goofy like joke of a of a fruit, there's they cause a lot of trouble. Well, and so the trouble that they caused in uh, in like Central America is so these these three firms w- would bring bananas up to America. They would make bank. They would use that money to buy out even more land basically buying out all the family-owned farms and plantations they would make more money they would buy more land basically it's just the three of them they are big banana and the idea is that these you're welcome (laughs) thank you for that the idea is that these plantations (coughs) would build wealth for these countries by exporting their bananas and and building out their infrastructure and they did do that i mean minor keith built a railway across costa rica um zamuri built out unusable land in honduras you think sure of course cool they're at least contributing to the local economy but in honduras for example zamuri had to deal with local officials and by deal i mean bribes to not pay any taxes uh and i assume cuyamel wasn't alone in this yeah it wasn't enough for them to just simply bribe their local officials Sometimes they deposed them. So this isn't a a deposition. But in 1899, Guatemala is under control of one of its most repressive dictators, Manuel Estrada Cabrera. United Fruit Company uses Cabrera's structure to their advantage, striking deals to help him and, on their end, gain massive profit and power. Under the next Guatemalan dictator, United Fruit Company gains control of 42% of the land in the entire country. What? They even manage the country's national post office. It's cray cray. At one point, United Fruit Company like basically owns and controls all the transportation across all of Central America, Colombia, Ecuador, the West Indies, like all of it. They're just, they are, they are the railroad. In 1910, the president of Honduras is Miguel R. Davila, and he makes a deal with the Vaccaro brothers, which later becomes Standard Fruit Company, giving them land in exchange for them building roads. Um, one source said that they were also going to award them a monopoly contract for the Honduran banana, but the land, like, Zamuri is in Honduras growing bananas, so he's like, you stepping on my turf, because that's Cuyamel's territory. So Zamuri and Cuyamel hire a mercenary army to overthrow President Avila and install a friend of theirs, General Manuel Bonilla, as president. Because he the is... Banan- big banana. Big banana overthrew an the army. Yes, you're a banana mercenary now. Oh my god. Yeah, so like they were behind the scenes. They're like, we're going to pay for this army... But we're we're not meddling. You'd think the United States would do something about this, you no. know? No, Natalie, that's where you're wrong. Oh. I don't think. Well, <laughs> hey, congratulations! You're right. <laughs> uh, they explain it away by saying that Devia was too liberal and a poor businessman, and that's why 
the president of Cuyamel Banana was like, mm, you're a bad businessman. <laughs> Oops, I took your country. Uh, but the truth is that the United States was directly profiting from all of these connections. Uh, In Guatemala, 72% of all of the exports went straight to the United States, and Guatemala received 65% of all of its imports from the United States. Wait, wait, 72% of Guatemala's exports? Went to America. Shit, that's a lot. And 65% of their imports came from America. So America just is like, if I don't You scratch my it, banana, I'll scratch yours. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the result of the of the Honduran coup is lasting political instability, a stalled out Honduran economy, lots and lots of debt, which of course meant that the government of Honduras couldn't do most of what the government is supposed to do, which of course meant that your friendly neighborhood banana companies stepped in to help. They were like, "We got gotcha. you." They built Aww. out all of Honduras's infrastructure for Honduras, not for themselves. They built out the roads, they built out the railways, they built out the ports. They ran the telephone, telegraph, and radio infrastructure, all the lines and towers. They even made the country's currency the US dollar. So now the fruit companies have a monopoly over every major industry in the country. Like they even own the shipping and utilities. Then the fruit companies move into the neighboring countries until basically all of Central America is Big Banana. It's all just built out this way. Everything is built to serve Big Banana. The only folks profiting out of this are the corporations and the heads of state. Anyone with a vested interest in bananas is golden. Everyone else is like working on these plantations in horrible conditions, not even being paid money, being paid coupons to use to buy things at the company store. Wait, that, what? Yes. You were paid with vouchers that you could only use at the company stores. You just have a bunch of people, like United impoverished people wearing t-shirts that say, I'm in indentured servitude and all I got was this big banana t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> because the only people profiting were the top bananas. <laughs> um, I just have to take a little break here because Natalie, you and I both do improv, right? Mm-hmm. And anytime um, we need to get a suggestion or we need to use an example. Specifically for pun situations. Specifically for pun games. What do we usually use? Oh, we usually ask the audience for a suggestion of a long, curved yellow fruit that's rich in potassium. Oh, a banana? Oh, man, thank you. Now let me do my example (laughs) using banana as a suggestion. Yup. I find that analogy very appealing. Sorry, I'm going to go split. Stop it. Oh, man improv i miss it <laughs> we're, we're great at it well i'm gonna split back into this story it's funny there's like actually only so many banana puns i can think of because we always use the same two yeah i think that's why we always burn banana because yeah, there's not there's any actually, good ones or there's actually not that many i don't know i just don't want to go up there and you know not have anything and then slip up that's all i got that's all i got I hate it. So now, okay, so cut to the 1920s. This is just me 
telling you a thing that I already told you, which is that in the ni- in in the 1920s, the Vaccaro Brothers rebrands to Standard Fruit. I just want you to be able to keep track of these banana monopolies. Yeah, which also banana monopolies, 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 monopolies. Sounds like a wonderful city to visit. <laughs> in 1928, we have the Banana Massacre. It wasn't oh, enough to have coons. So remember how I talked about, remember how I mentioned um, just literally seconds ago that the people working on the banana plantations were treated like shit? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Cool, 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 cool. So they tried to go on strike for better working conditions. And after several weeks of no settlement, the Colombian, this is in Colombia, surprise, the Colombian president, Miguel, oh, this one I didn't remember, Miguel, Miguel Abadia Mendez, Abadia Mendez, I don't know sent in the army and massacred at least 47 workers. This is another fun. I love when, well, I love when my research does this. At least 47 workers. Some reports say up to a thousand. Oh, you know, that, that whole, you know, I can't even do the math. The report 40 that says, something margin of error. The report that says up to a thousand is a dispatch from the U.S. Bogota embassy to the u.s secretary of state so that's a source that i feel like i would trust but also that's likely to be like we killed a thousand of them high fives chest bumps war war that's how i what is it good for bananas bananas (laughs) Uh, protecting our nanners (laughs) gotta protect the nanners always Oh, and the Colombian government only sent in the army because the United States basically strong-armed them into doing it. They threatened, the U.S. government threatened to invade if the Colombian government didn't act and stamp out these strikers because the United Fruit Company had been messaging the United States saying that the strikers were communists and this is 1928, 1929. If there's one thing America hates, it's it's a fucking communist. Goddamn commies. Goddamn commies. Yeah, I'm going to read you the dispatch from the, from the U.S. Bogota Embassy to the U.S. Secretary of State. This is dated January 16th, 1929. Quote, I have the honor to report that the Bogota representative of the United Fruit Company told me yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military exceeded 1,000. There's a bunch of these dispatches that are all just like, I am pleased to inform you. Who, who is reading that? Blood, sounds- blood is running through the fields of bananas. That, that, that. That character voice, that sounds like that's probably a real person. Who was that that was reading the dispatch? Oh, I don't know. I just went, I just, just give me really. Name, oh, just give me oh, a fake name. Hold on, let me check my notes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crumple, crumple, crumple. <laughs> oh, yes. That was Ambassador. It was Ambassador Daryl Pennington. Oh, this ambas- is why I don't do the fake names. You do Am- fake names. Ambassador Daryl Pennington? Mm-hmm. I've heard of him. They said that he had a very goofy voice and got very excited whenever he got to give dispatches. Anytime the dispatch was about death, they called in Ambassador Daryl. I'm pleased to announce. He wasn't quite so jowly, Cass. Please. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, I, I must have the honor. There it is. There. It anyway, is. 
by the 1930s, international and political tensions created by bananas by the United Fruit Company enabled the corporation to control 80 to 90% of the banana biz. So there were three. Now there's kind of just the one. The other are around, but there's kind of just the one. Uh, They owned 3.5 million acres of land in Central America and the Caribbean and were the single largest landowner in Guatemala. In 1930, Cuyamel is bought out by United Fruit Company. So one more down. Zamuri retires, but then later stages a hostile takeover in 1933. So he retires for like three years and he's like, you know what? I miss them nanners. I miss like Jay Z. He's like, you know, when was that? Early 2000s. He's like, I'm retiring. I don't do rap anymore. And then, and then he came that. back. Yeah. Didn't Eminem retire like four times? Probably. Michael Jordan retired. Michael Jordan just kept switching sports and yeah. calling it a retirement. <laughs> uh, so 1933, Zamuri takes back over Kuyamel and continues as president of United Fruit Company. So Sorry. United Fruit Company buys Kuyamel. Zamuri's so like, thanks for all the money, for all the nanners. I'm out. I'm retiring. And then three years later, he's like, I'm bored slash I don't like what you're doing with the company. Uh, I'm coming back. Getting back in the banana game. Getting back in the banana game because I'm Sam the Banana Man. (laughs) So I bring that up just so that we know who's in charge at the point, at this next fun bit. Mm. 1944, the Guatemalan Revolution. I'll remind you, I just told you, United Fruit Company was the single largest landowner in Guatemala. This is also called the October Revolution. It demonstrates what some people call Guatemala's first true election. Juan Jose Araveo is appointed. The country stabilizes a bit. And a few years later, his democratically appointed successor, Jacobo Arbenz, takes control. And he seems cool. He seems like he actually like is genuinely dedicated to the betterment of his country. Mm. He wants to redistribute unused land to poor landless farmers. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, but you know who that wouldn't be nice to? Who? The top bananas. Oh, the big bananas? The big bananas. (laughs) Uh, It would lessen the country's dependence on United Fruit Company, which is no bueno for them. No. So United Fruit Company essentially goes to the United States government and goes, you know what? This worked in 1928. I bet we could do it again. (gasps) Strongly implies that Arbenz granted known communists in Guatemala the right to vote. And now we're in the thick of the Cold War, so it doesn't take much. The United States government intervenes and sends the CIA on a covert mission. The CIA is like brand new at this point. And they're oh, like, send him into Nanner country <laughs> on a covert mission to remove Arbenz from office. Guatemalan official Carlos Castillo Armas leads the opposition. And, uh, you know, congrats. The United States starts a bloody revolution. What's great is that Guatemala, like Arbenz in Guatemala, doesn't know that the United States is behind this revolution. So he reaches out to Eisenhower. Oh, Jesus. And Eisenhower is like, oh, I can't, I gotta wash my hair. (laughs) I just realized that's also funny because Eisenhower's bald. Uh, (laughs) Comedy. Over the next 40 years, 200,000 people in Guatemala alone are killed in guerrilla attacks, 
government crackdowns, civil wars that broke broke out all across Latin America. Eighty three percent of the victims were ethnic Mayans. Che Guevara, um, he happened to be in Guatemala in 1954 when Arbenz was overthrown. So perhaps that gave him a little bit of an idea to take back home. United Fruit Company's activities in Cuba were significant in the rise of Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution of the late 50s. They participated in the Bay of Pigs invasion in 61, which led to the Cuban Missile, Com- Cuban Missile Crisis. Which all the missiles were supplied by the Cuban Missile Company. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and they were full of bananas as well. <laughs> they were actually, there were no missiles. There were only bananas. They were bluffing. It was a big old banana bluff. <laughs> so these... These fruit companies built Central America, but they also destroyed it. Rich Cohen, who wrote the book that I mentioned earlier that we will put at some in our list and on the social medias, wrote that he believes that at the end, Zamuri realized his, quote, good intentions and pursuit of the American dream wound up actually doing a lot of bad. Because at the end of his life, he started giving a lot of money back to Central America. But this is a quote from the book. Uh, or an interview with him, it was sort of too late to wash out that entire record, and he acknowledged it. He's like a Shakespeare character at the end of the play. You can't go back. That's bleak. Well, and I foreshadowed to this at the beginning when I said same shit, different name, same manners, (laughs) different name. Standard Fruit Company, formerly the Vaccaro Brothers, is now the Dole Food Company. In 1976, the CEO of United Fruit Company jumps out a fucking window. And really? there, he just, he's like, too stressed. <laughs> Jumped out a window. Can't, can't keep can't. running any more wars. Or maybe he slipped on a banana and fell. <laughs> <laughs> Who's to say? So, in, in, and after that, they are bought and they're also rebranded. As so who? The Chiquita brands. Ooh. So, quite literally... Same shit, different company name, different name. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I also found something in my research that said in 1929, the United Fruit Company set up their own like education department, which supplied United States schools with teaching kits that basically were like bananas are amazing because they did oh a lot God. of ba- they did a lot of banana propaganda because people <laughs> didn't know what a banana was. Also, please say banana propaganda. Yeah. It's fun to say. Say it. Banana propaganda. You know what? I hereby motion that Banana Republic, the store, changes Changes their name name. to Banana Propaganda. It's more fun. And you know what? If they're going to utilize this horrendous idea of Banana Republics and, you know, taking advantage of countries like that, yeah. Banana propaganda. At least use the name correctly. Yeah, I second that motion. All right, we'll uh, do it. <laughs> but some of the some of the banana propaganda included this education department that like literally sent things to U.S. public schools, being like, "Bananas are great," and their home economics department showered housewives with banana recipes. So, like banana cream pie and like banana bread, like literally Wait, banana what propaganda. That, what this, was was in, this was in 1929. But from the beginning, bananas had to be 
marketed because nobody had seen a banana. They yeah. were like, they're not grown here. They were no. so rare. And then people were like, what is it? What do I do with it? Oh, I can eat it. Can oh, I, I got to take the peel off first. <laughs> can I, can I put it in other things? Great. A pie. Cool. A bread. So we needed to be taught to love the banana. And then we abused. Boy, we did. We Boy, abused we the bana- source of the banana. We abused the banana. Like bananas we bruised are bruised them. We bruised everyone. It's, you know what? <laughs> it's a bunch of bullshit. Mm-hmm. A, a, shit a bunch is a- bananas. Shit. <laughs> B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Yeah. And then Gwen Stefani abused the banana name. <laughs> So, god damn! So there's my uplifting tale of of a <laughs> of a fun fruit. Oh, <laughs> total economic and political devastation. <laughs> so fun. You know what? The game Monopoly as a kid, like I didn't know what the word Monopoly meant. I was like, "That's a weird name." Let's play the game. And then when I actually learned, it's like a you know economic term and whatnot. I was like, mm-hmm. "That's horrible." But now you got me hooked on the game and all I want to do is seek and destroy and take everything for myself. Well, as long as you understand. And that is how America propagandizes through childhood games. Capitalism, man. Capitalism, man. And how they get you now now to double down on that sweet, sweet capitalism. uh, There's a million different like themed versions of Monopoly. So like we have two... We have two Monopoly boards. One of them, we've never even opened. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, I've Doctor probably Monopoly, actually played Monopoly, Monopoly like twice. Oh, I have Disney Monopoly. Disney Monopoly slaps. I think I've actually played a whole game of Monopoly maybe twice in my life. <laughs> Sorry, I just dropped all of my belongings. <laughs> <laughs> but I also made the stupidest noise as I did it, so it's okay. <laughs> It's fun because you couldn't see me drop everything because I have a virtual background on. Yeah, well, I also didn't hear it. I don't know if the video cut out or whatever. So all of a sudden I just see Natalie disappear into her green screen background and hear nothing. Just disappeared into the promenade of Deep Space Nine because that's mm-hmm. my background. So that's that's banana times. Banana times. Ugh, crazy times. Hey, Nat, uh, can I talk about Iowa for a minute? Honestly, I'm shocked you're even asking for permission this time. It's just that this podcast is sponsored by Raygun, and they're headquartered in Iowa. Yeah, but they're bigger than Iowa. They're the greatest store in the universe. Oh, really? Who called them that? Raygun did. Checks out. All I'm saying is don't limit Raygun's excellence to just Iowa. I mean, they've got brick and mortar stores in six cities and like an online empire. They're super important to the fabric of the entire universe. Their t-shirts are like the second most important element and they gain on oxygen like every day. That's true. Also, they are super modest. They are. It's truly awe-inspiring. Gosh, Raygun's just so great. Right? And this is an ad paid for by them. So go check them out at their stores across the Midwest or online at raygunsite.com. Use promo code Sherry later to save on your next order. Uh, now, can I talk about Iowa? Oh, look, we're out of time. Nap, quick confession. I can't stop thinking about your birthday cake from last year. Oh, the one from ECBG Cake Studio? 
Is that where that delicious custom cake was from? Yep, but ECBG does more than cake. They help everyone celebrate the moments that matter. They believe in equality and community and that ordinary moments should be celebrated too, not just extraordinary people's birthdays, wink. They even have online baking classes. Mm, they sound dreamy. You know, if you're still dreaming of that cake, you should check out at ECBG underscore studio on Instagram or their website, ecbgstudio.com. Okay, so now I get to talk about my love of Chicago, right? I guess fair is fair. More specifically, I want to talk about my love of Chicago history and architecture, which I share with our sponsor, Cape Horn Illustration. You know their work isn't all Chicago-centric, right? Yeah, but the pieces I own are. Fair. Cape Horn Illustration is a Chicago-based art studio with a love of architecture in the city. Their work features classic home illustrations, badass ceramics, and so much more. They even take commissions. Check them out at capehorn-illustration.com. Use promo code SHAREDCAPE for 10% off. Can you peel out into your story? Yeah, you know, let me just let me just use your pun and peel out my <laughs> story. <laughs> Been too long since we've gotten to improvise. We're losing. Oh it. yes, we've, um, we're losing our powers. <laughs> <laughs> Though we are stronger together. Mm-hmm. I, I'm super glad you gave us a great uplifting story because do what I can. Mine's not super uplifting. It it's is history, Cass. It's yeah. You know what? History is just rife with bummers. <laughs> huge bummers. Um, but pretty cool people. And that's, that's what my story is. I'm going to tell you about Sarah Winnemucca. She was born in 1844 in Nevada, and she was a Native American from the Northern Paiute tribe. Okay. She was... Wait, I already forgot. Did you say 1844? 1844. 1844. Yeah. So this was back when and this is kind of like northern, like Utah area as well. So the territory thing, it's confusing because it was like the territory, but the state that her tribe came from was Utah area. Um, she was born to an influential family. Basically, she was like a whiz with languages. Oh, and real, this was a real polyglot. Wait, is oh, that oh, is that the word? I believe that's the word polyglot whether it is or not we're using it I'm throughout the whole episode 0.87% sure that's the word I'm gonna look it well, up well we'll we'll look it up and I bet you're right I trust you implicitly when it comes to words knowing or using several languages yeah hey um Natalie what is the study of bugs <laughs> wait entomology you did it and what is etymology the study of words the origin, origin of words. We've gotten here, Natalie. We did it. It's taken three seasons. It was really difficult. And you figured you out the- asked me specifically what the bug one was. And so then I was like, wait, that's the one that I so it's the one that I do always say. The one that I always <laughs> say is the bug one. It's like ent ent sounds like ant, and an ant is a bug. Okay, I don't think of that though. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I've said it on the podcast. I think of entomans. That's all I think about. I think your mind just goes blank. You're like, just say a word. <laughs> just a series of sounds. <laughs> um, she was she was a whiz at languages. She basically, in all of her, all my research of her and everything that kind of led her life, is she straddled the line between native Paiute and uh, this kind of Americanized European 
Um, it said she had, she had a very conflicted term or time with the term American because she's Native American and she wanted to honor her tribe and her culture and everything. But I don't know if you know this, the United States was not super cool to Native Americans. What? Uh, I know. I, I was just as surprised to find out as you are. And so she very much like adapted and, you know, Americanized, quote unquote, Anglicized, whatever, this European style, um, in order to help her people. Mm -hmm. So she was the daughter of Chief Winnemucca, who was essentially a war chief. When she was about, I want to say like 16 or something, she went out, she kind of traveled and it says she like took the stage and everything with her family. So she kind of was like entertaining people with, you know, the novelty of like Native Americans and whatnot. Mm. Um, And she was called Princess Winnemucca. And I think it was very much kind of exploitative and look at us and whatnot. And so said she was a princess. She said at one point that her father was the chief of all of the Paiute people. But really, he was just a war chief of this small band of, of people. But because of traveling around, like being on the stage and also having a dad as a war chief and whatnot, she has was in very close contact with the U.S. Army and whatnot. And she actually helped a lot of the generals and whatnot translate. So she, from a very young age, she learned Spanish, she learned English, she learned all of the um, surrounding regional tribal languages. And basically she would translate for the U.S. Army, which is like, all right, there's been enough like misunderstandings leading to horrible, horrible acts. So exactly, exactly. And so we use our words. I will help you. (laughs) I will speak slowly for you. And in your language (laughs) so that you do not have an excuse to commit atrocities. Yes. Oh, actually, I bet they still did. No, no, no. She stopped everything and they were good to all of the Native Americans from then on out. Oh, great. Phew. That was a lot. Oh, damn it. (laughs) Oh, actually, I think we had mentioned this in one of our previous stories about Native Americans, but her father, uh, Winnemucca, was actually Shoshone and he joined the Paiute tribe through marriage. Okay. Remember we were talking about how it was all like matriarchal and whatnot and like you don't need to be born into this tribe to be part of it. You need to like just be one of us like they're not blood a lot in the iroquois confederacy yes absolutely that's what it was her her grandfather actually uh truquizo or his name was or trucky which means good um or hello uh he was kind of the his his name means good or hello yeah so uh, trucky uh, it means good in the Paiute language, or they think it's derived from troquet, which means hello. Got it. So it which there's, like, it could be like a, hey, or like a, what's good? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that's exactly what yeah, it's yeah, like. Yeah. Um, I, I love like origins of names or like this means that like, so Sarah Wanamuka's name was. What does Cassidy mean? Cassidy means of curlied hair. That's a lie. Mm-hmm. I know, which is funny because my sister has very curly hair and her name is Katie and Katie means pure. Natalie but- means birthday of the Lord. Is it really? Mm-hmm. It hmm. means Crimbus. My name means Crimbus. Oh, but you're a Leo. Well, and I believe Jesus 
was born in August. So I believe <gasps> Jesus may have been a Leo. Oh, shit. No way. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. That explains so much. And he had, like, long curly hair. <sighs> he is such a, such a Leo. It's like, everything's about me. I'm yeah. the son of God. <laughs> it's all adding up now. Mm-hmm. But uh, Sarah's uh, given name was Tokmatone, which means shell flower, which I actually looked up and they're actually very pretty flowers. But I like that that's like, she's not a wallflower. She's, she's a, a shell, shell flower. flower. Yes. Um, but yeah, so, so in my notes, it's like, oh, this was her grandfather. It was spelled this way or this way or this way. It means this or this. So I just didn't give you all of that background information i'm sorry anyway so hello her grandfather (laughs) (laughs) he he was kind of the first person to establish um relations with the european americans when they were exploring the great basin and i was telling natalie before we started recording that i was i i went on a trip recently a week-long road trip to fort collins and salt lake city and jackson and wyoming and victor idaho it was phenomenal we did all the outdoorsy things because um, that's all that is safe to do. Exactly. I fought a bear. No, I didn't, but I saw a bear when I was hiking on a mountain. Um, but the Great Basin area area is Salt Lake City is like the easternmost area of it. And then it goes west into California, south into New Mexico. It's basically the like the desert west and whatnot. Sorry, not south. It's most of Nevada um, and parts of Utah, California, Idaho. Um, so her grandfather helped Captain John C. Fremont, who was a European-American explorer. When I was doing my research, I was like, oh, what? Because when I was in Salt Lake City, we're like, what can we do here that's, you know, outdoors and not around people? And uh, one of my girlfriend's friends was like, go to Antelope Island. Like, what the fuck is that? Well, it's this island in the middle of Salt Lake City, or of Salt Lake, that a bunch of bison live on. Didn't see one antelope. That's a misnomer. Yeah, but it used to be filled with antelope and pronghorn antelope and whatnot. But so we looked it up, because also, I know nothing about the American, like... Was it also filled with padfoot? Was it, were Padfoot and Prongs? Padfoot there? and Prongs were there. No, but we, we managed enough mischief, so we didn't need to okay. see them. <laughs> but I, I just, I don't know anything about like Utah or Salt Lake City or any of that. And so I was so shocked because this island is like in the middle of Salt Lake. And it's like, Salt Lake is huge. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's a lake made of salt, which I just never really thought about before. And nothing can really live in there. There's like, I was Googling up a storm. Because first of all, Antelope Island's the greatest name ever. So I had to do research on it. And basically, John C. Fremont, who was this explorer, rode on his horse from land across the lake to Antelope Island. Salt Lake City is, or Salt Lake is not very deep. Like you can't really have boats on it. You can't do anything there. So he literally walked to this island. And so when I was doing my research on Sarah Winamuka, I was like, wait, John C. Fremont, I know that name. I was on his island. But Truckee, Winnemucca's grandfather, um, helped guide John C. Fremont, who was a surveyor, a map maker, all across the Great Basin area. 
and Truckee later fought in the Mexican-American War. He, it says that he earned many white friends, leading the way for his extended family's relationship with European-Americans. So basically, Pop Pop was like, hey, I, I met a bunch of cool white dudes. They like me too, so they're going to be cool with you. And since he also kind of sensed there was this great influx of the whites and whatnot, he made sure that... like, this is an advantageous... Exactly, yes. Relationship. And so, it seems like it's befriend these whites mm-hmm. or be massacred. I don't like them, but I guess I have to. It's it's complicated, and, and it was so for many of the Winnemucas, um, the family. So, yeah, so Chief Winnemucca learned... English, Sarah learned English and Spanish. Like it was just kind of always this presence of European Americans. When she was six years old, she moved to California. She moved around a lot as a kid, by the way, too. And when she was in California, she was living with this man named William Ormsby, who owned a hotel with his wife in Carson City, or sorry, he owned a hotel in Carson City. Um, they wanted a companion for their white daughter. And so it's another one of these like, cool, I'm just like hanging out with your daughter. But also she adapted very easily with all of the European Americans coming in. She seemed to assimilate to this white existence very easily. She picked up the language very quickly. She got along with people. She kind of knew how to work everyone and to fit in. She was one of the few Paiute in Nevada who knew how to read and write English, and her entire family spoke English. And then in 1960, uh, she moved back to Nevada, and there was this conflict that occurred. In 1960? No, Natalie. I clearly said 1860, not 1960. Oops. <laughs> I was like, wait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to just cut out the rest of her life. We're going to jump. She's really old also. I was like, wait, is she like yeah. running around with... With uh, Wilma Mankiller now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her and Wilma were best friends. Um, No, but there was this conflict in 1860. Some of the Paiute men had killed two white men who had killed, kidnapped, and abused two Paiute girls. Doesn't matter if white people do bad things. If you retaliate, we must annihilate you. So the settlers, and it was a mining town, they organized a militia and Ormsby, who Sarah was like living with and, and living under, um, ended up kind of like leading this militia. He was killed. And apparently, like the Paiute army, the fighters were extremely disciplined, very organized. These kind of like a volunteer militia had no clue what they were getting into. They were completely shocked that these are like, this is an army of Paiute people. Yeah, they're they're rolling in like it's an extended bar brawl. Exactly. Yeah. And the Paiutes um, are like, we gonna kick your ass. Yeah. And so that was in I don't remember when it started, but by the end of that summer. So it, it was it wasn't a super long conflict. A truce had been reached. And young Winamuka, Sarah's cousin, um, was leading the the people. They had to live on the Pyramid Lake Reservation, which was the area that they kind of grew up in and whatnot. They were there for five years from 1860 to 1865. Sarah and her family frequently traveled away from the reservation on stage. This is what I was telling you when she was like 
a stage performer. Oh, and so in Nevada, the U.S. forces, while she was there and while she was away, they were acting against the Native Americans to like show them who was in charge. I'm using quotes. quotes. <sighs> they were the natives were accused of raids, of cattle stealing, of doing all this stuff. They were building up like bad reputations against Native Americans and then retaliating against them for things they weren't really doing. And and then one of the leaders of the army attacked old Winnemucca's, so Sarah's father, his camp, killing 29 of the 30 persons in the group who were old men, women, and children. Wait, so who was the one left? State? This was, um, I don't know. But okay. like, yeah, so I think Winnemucca died in this. Um, his, I mean, the odds are not against that. Yes, yes. Her sister was there too, but she one of her sisters died there, but her other sister had been adopted by a French family. It's really confusing that, like, I'm stopping and starting a lot on here. The timeline is really confusing because, like, her and her family all moved to different places mm-hmm. all the time. Like, she was living with this family in a... Um, in a hotel with one of her sisters, but then her brother and her other sister were living somewhere else. And then they came back, but then one sister was living with like a French family, but then they were performing on stage, Mm. but then they're in reservations. Well, it's like they were, it's almost like they were like passing around this English speaking family. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they went where they were, where they were needed, even if that need was companionship for some white dude's daughter. Yeah, I think I think they kind of realized that like, oh, these white people are coming in to stay. Like, we need to a kind of steer clear of them, but also stay on their good side, and also kind of help them out. But clearly, that didn't work out long term because they were. It was like while this one family is away, like sowing the seeds of of friendship and camaraderie. Yeah, the people, the white people in the surrounding the areas surrounding the tribe are using them as scapegoats for everything. Oh yeah, like there's no winning. It's like help us. White people are like help us, and we'll help you. So they, you know, help, and then it's like all right, but we're gonna also screw you over. Yeah, Sarah Winamuka was known as such a great translator. She was knowledgeable. She also felt very comfortable with the European Americans, and they felt comfortable with her. Um, so she was invited to work as an interpreter at the Malheur Reservation. And this is by, in, with Indian agent Samuel B. Parrish. So I think when we were talking about the Iroquois Confederacy, or one, one of our Native American stories, like, they had a whole, like, Bureau of Indian Affairs, mm-hmm. who, were, who were just such courageous and good-hearted Americans that were only there to take care of the welfare of the native peoples and only had their best interest at heart <laughs> lies <laughs> it was it was yeah they're basically just there to to essentially babysit and do whatever the government wants them to do and native americans be damned but there was this one agent samuel b Parrish, who actually was doing a pretty good job um he worked well with the Paiute people he was trying to encourage like learning and they the Malheur reservation was in this like horrible plot of land where like nothing can grow obviously these people have been displaced so they're like we don't know how to work this land we didn't grow up here and whatnot so he was trying to help them learn how to raise crops there work the land he was supporting the people 
um, was really big on building agricultural programs. He built a school that Sarah became the assistant teacher at. But then he left, like he got ousted or something. And this new guy came in and William V. Reinhardt, who was a dick. And so Parrish, who was like helping out. Parrish, Parrish who was like doing the job that, that he, he was a, thought he was hired for. Yeah, exactly. You know, just doing it very well. And they're like, yeah. no, 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 we need to move you. You're doing your job too well. Well, yeah. And, and also Sarah, who knew how to work him, work with yeah. him, whatever. Um, Reinhardt came in and he was like, nah, don't care about you guys. He was a proponent of quote unquote extermination style warfare. He wanted oh, that to just. That sounds fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Super cool. Everything that Parrish had implemented for learning, for education, for all that stuff, Reinhardt scrapped. He was like, we're done with this. He started all of the money and funds that were coming into the reservation. Um, he wasn't paying them. He wasn't paying the the, the work, um, the farmers for their labor. And then all of the like exports, anything that was going to the reservation, he started pocketing and giving to like white settlers off the reservation. So he was like making money off them. It got the Malheur reservation was compared to like a concentration camp at the time. Completely intolerable, like horrendous, not great. And so the the Bannock people who are from Southern Idaho, they started trying to move out and they were raiding white settlements. They were, they essentially started a war. It's called the Bannock War. Winnemucca served as a translator for the U.S. Army. And so, and I think the Bannock were also raiding the Paiute people too. So Winnemucca was like, so okay, I'm going to- Everybody's gonna... dunking on the Paiutes. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> They did say, though, the Bannock warriors and the army soldiers liked each other so much that they rarely shot to kill. That during the course of this war, there were, like, weirdly few casualties. And Winnemucca served as a, a translator and a scout for this. So she was scouting the, the Bannock people. And she said that, like, no one wanted to help the army. Like, white people didn't want to. Paiute people didn't want to. Like, no one wanted to. Men didn't want to. I'm just this, she said some quote somewhere. She's like, I'm just this Indian woman who's riding for 200 miles to scout this army to help out and whatnot. So she's like doing like kind of fucking real hard work. She goes back and forth from reservation to reservation. Like her people are moved from the Malheur to the Yakama. She ends up starting to lecture. Um, she's a very good public speaker. She can speak all these different languages. So she starts lecturing about the treatment of Native Americans. She ends up going to, to Washington, D.C. She goes to the East Coast. She starts lecturing all up and down the East Coast. In Boston, she met Elizabeth Peabody and Mary Peabody Mann, who she was like a lecturer. And she was also the woman who created the first English language kindergarten. She's a transcendentalist. She was all about activism and, you know, getting the word out. And her husband, Horace Mann, was like a famous educator and whatnot. So they used their kind of name and, and power and stuff to, to get her, her like lectures mm -hmm. out and in the public. They helped compile her lecture, lecture material for Sarah Winnemucca's autobiography that Sarah wrote called Life Among the Paiutes. It's the first autobiography written by a Native American woman. One of the, it's still considered one of the greatest modern like 
American autobiographies. It gives what life was like as the Paiutes. Like as, the, the, as the title would suggest. As the title would suggest, yes. And and the th- the cool thing is, is that like Sarah ended up like going back to her original like Paiute tribe and like the reservation there. And she started a school and she's trying to educate the kids there and teach them English and whatnot. But she's also trying to teach them about their own culture, mm-hmm. which so much of it is lost for every tribe. Yes. Um, it becomes kind of homogenous now. It's like Native American is, you know, cool, you're in this tribe, but like, I, I mean, I, as a, as a white person, don't know a lot about the individual tribes, but mm-hmm. a lot of the people of those tribes don't know a lot of their history either because it was taken from them. It was... They were, you know, they were often like all lumped together, literally physically and like moved around and... Yes. And then you take someone like... elders the, died and the people who would be passing down traditions were no longer with them because of war, because of disease, because of... Yes. And, and like, like the Indian agent Reinhardt, like the whole extermination style, like he closed down all of the educational facilities on the Malheur reservation because he's like... I don't want y'all to know, I don't care if you guys learn your own history and whatnot, like so many people actively were trying to erase them. Well, he was also probably like, I don't care if you learn American customs or English because you are easier to take advantage of and exploit if you don't. Exactly. So she started, she started lecturing, she lived out east for a while and, um, and then eventually came back and started a school. That only lasted two years because uh, U.S. Congress um, went back on their word about uh, funding for everything. Of wait, course. Wait, wait, are are U.S. Congress? Yes, Natalie. I know it's hard to believe. I'm shocked. Yeah, I I was too. We we just spent 45 minutes talking about how they you know undermined all of Central America, but I'm shocked. Uh, but I can't believe it her school only lasts for a few years where she she wanted to focus on teaching kids and teaching them english and also teaching them their own culture and whatnot which got closed down so it was it was really important that she wrote this book she gave everyday life of of not just being a native american or a a female native american but her tribe specifically she ended up kind of dying in obscurity she uh, her second husband, who her first one was, um, was like a U.S. major, and he like left her. Like they got married, and then he was just like peace. And then her second husband, who like she like loved, I think they really loved each other, was a like a gambling addict. So he like gambled away all of her money. So she died like of tuberculosis alone with her sister, with not a lot of money. But she's known as one of the greatest. Native American activists and educators. She used her kind of her stage presence that she learned as a kid to catch crowds and like learn how to speak or not learn how to speak, but like she was just a great orator and she got people to listen to the plight of Native Americans that they hadn't before. And the scope, she was like lecturing all through California, all through Eastern, like she literally went coast to coast to tell people about like, hey, y'all, people aren't being nice to us. And she wrote uh, like an amazing autobiography, which is Life Among the Paiutes, Their Wrongs and Claims. It's, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, thanks for your uplifting story, Natalie. Mine is also sad, but like, but she's a fucking fighter and a badass. And she was like an explorer. And she was like, 
helping the army, but she's also like doing it for herself and her people. And Sarah Winamuka, shellflower. History is often a bummer. If we've learned anything from yeah. newly becoming historians. Yes. But you know what? We got a lot of banana puns out of it. I just love that she, that that quote that you paraphrased of like, I'm just a young Indian woman casually riding 200 miles. Yeah. And, and that's because that, no one else will do it. It was literally like no man, no soldier, no white man wants to help. Just me, this Indian woman, and then goes on to recount the whole, like, like she was scouting. She saw a job that needed to be done, and she did it. She fucking Unlike did it. Unlike all of the people in my story that saw a resource that they could exploit and peoples that they could make do the jobs for them. I love how Banana Sam, at the end of his life, was like, you know what? My intentions were in the right place when I outfitted an army to overthrow yeah. the government. But you know what? Maybe, maybe that was the American the best. dream, though. The American dream made me do it. My dream is to underhandedly build my own army to bring down a country. That's what it is, man. It's that. Perfectly manicured lawn, white picket fence, and your own army of mercenaries. <laughs> that is a that is the dream that I want to mm-hmm. live. Thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of a coup. <laughs> Cuckoo kachoo. Mm-hmm. I would say that your story was more uplifting than mine, even if the end wasn't. She was uh, cool. The people in my story were asshats. I just, I feel like any story with like Native American activists, it's like, it's not going to be happy. Yeah, we know the just ending. set up to not have it be great. Like you're gonna, you're gonna do, it's like Wilma Mankiller. Like she did everything. She pushed forward so many boundaries. She helped so many people, but there is just so much going against her too. So for yeah. however much she was able to dig out of the hole that the United States government put her there. It's just too big of a hole. Yeah. So she's doing it, yeah. but. Well, and it's like she could maybe dig herself out, but like that isn't going to undo no. generations of, yeah. of damage. Yeah. That's what reparations are for. <laughs> we should do those. We should do more of those. Oh boy. Oh boy. You can send questions, corrections, <laughs> or suggestions to us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You know what else you can send to sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com? If you leave us a review, screen grab it and, and send it to us, not because we didn't see it, but because we want, we'll send you a little thank you note. I love sending mail more than most things. Natalie's so, very good at it. I don't know, I'll send you like a sticker or a pin or something. It's going to be great. It's great. You can also send those to us on the social medias where you can find so many pictures, so many. And all the books we mentioned mm-hmm. at Shared Pod. We're on there. We're, we're, we're tweeting the tweets. We're gramming so- the instas. So come play with us. Oh, that sounded so creepy. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Banana propaganda. <laughs> I'm so glad you shared with me. I'm so glad that you got to kind of take me on your road trip with you. Since you didn't invite me to actually go on your... I'm not in the same state as you right now, but I'm going to pretend that I'm upset about it. Yeah, yeah. we'll plan our fake beef. Yeah, oh man, can we be like the oasis of podcasts where it's like... 
we're working together. We fucking hate each other. VH1 behind the music. You heard it here first, guys. Can't we're wait. starting a beef. And you can catch up on this beef because we will share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.